Last week, we gave a little update on some of the things going on in our kids' ministry. If you weren't here, uh, we spent the last year looking at some of the growth that we've seen in our kids' area and trying to figure out how to staff well around that. We made some changes, and we have an amazing team in place. And there's some great ways for you to get involved, and I would invite you after the service if you're interested at all in volunteering. And it's a place where we do some really good intergenerational connections. So... Um, Anybody is welcome to be involved, so we'd invite you to check that out if you have a passion there. And they will be at the next-gen check-in table. Go check that out. And uh, if you have questions about programming, what's going on, check that out as well. And uh, we're going to have a fun fall. We're, we're putting some, uh, I think, really good plans in place as we head into the fall. And that World Vision truck that you saw is going to be amazing. Uh, you really need to spread the word on that. It's going to be cool to not only experience it ourselves, but share with our community uh, things that God cares about. That's important. So, Acts chapter 15, I was thinking as I was uh, studying this week and the last few weeks that we've been in the book of Acts in this year-long wayfinding series, uh, Scott Jones, who preached here over July 4th weekend, mentioned that one of the reasons that he um, trusts the Bible, one of the many reasons that he trusts the Bible, is uh, the rough edges are not smoothed out in Scripture. And it's intriguing in the early church that a lot of the brokenness, a lot of the messiness is there right in the story because uh, I, I think that's helpful to us because that's our story as well. Uh, we're not perfect. We're created in the image of God and broken by sin. And so the community that we're reading about, about is very much like our community. Um, beautiful places and messed up places. And so this morning in Acts chapter 15, we're going to be talking about a church fight. I don't know about you, I love, love a good church fight, amen? Especially when it's in somebody else's church. Church fights. I mean, even the word for some of you, like you just started getting really nervous. Maybe you walked away from church for a number of years over something that you saw. Because in the church, we tend to fight over a lot of things that don't matter. Carpet color, pews or chairs, non-essential sort of things that we get all riled up about. We tend to have really big blow-ups over things that don't matter. And if you're new to Crossview, we're like any church. We are just as broken and just as beautiful as any church that's trying to pursue life in Jesus Christ. But a good church fight. Sounds like an oxymoron. Good church fight. That's what we want to talk about this morning is what does it look like? I remember growing up, I saw many a church fight. Some over things that didn't matter, some over things that didn't matter. My first job as a youth pastor, uh, the senior pastor allowed us to meet in sort of this athletic club when we rented these racquetball courts and played volleyball. Has anybody ever played volleyball? It's volleyball inside a racquetball court, and it's as awesome as it sounds and dangerous as it sounds. But we saw all these kids coming to Christ, and we were singing the modern worship choruses, and so there was this group of people in our church that started getting really upset about it. And they would come into the senior pastor's office and they were just mad, they were angry, they were up for a fight. They wanted this to be the fight. And he would ask this question, are students coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Just had one question. And that gets to the heart of what we're going to see this morning. What is a good church fight? And not only what is a good church fight, but how would we enter into a good fight? Because we know that there is such thing as a good fight in a, in a marriage a good fight, might want to say a good argument, we don't like to use the word fight, but a good argument ends up in strengthening the relationship. And I think even in a church setting, because this is relationship, relationship with God and relationship with each other, 
healthy arguments, healthy conflict, healthy fights can actually strengthen the witness that we have in the world around us. So with all that said, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read this story straight through and invite you to take it in. And then we're going to break it down and talk about it and see what it means for us today. But we have a big story to read, but it is absolutely amazing. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. And here it is. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and require, as required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood up and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. We talked about that in chapter 10 last week. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood up and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them as a people for himself. And this conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. This is the book of Amos. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine, the Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. And so my judgment is this, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. That's weird stuff. We'll talk about that in a little bit. For these laws of Moses have been preached in the Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria and Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives 
along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm that we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, really important wording, to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, or the meat of strangled animals and sexual immorality. If you do, do this, you will do well. Farewell. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. The word of the Lord. It's interesting that this fight in Acts chapter 15, it's over something that is essential. It's over the nature of what salvation is. And Luke, the writer of, of Acts, he wrote Luke and Acts. I love how he starts it. He says there's this group of men or a certain group of individuals, basically not giving them name. They, they are thinking they speak for the whole and he's not giving them sort of that power that they wanted. They don't represent the whole. They think they do, but they don't. They're only speaking for themselves. This particular group of people, they're Pharisees. They've heard about the Gentiles that we talked about last week coming to faith in Antioch. And there's this rumor that they had put their faith in Christ, that they're being baptized. And the rumor also included they were being welcomed into the church without being circumcised. And thinking they spoke for the whole church, even though they did not, they start preaching this message, you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. Basically, you cannot be saved unless you become a Jew. If you don't accept the law, Christ will not accept you. It's interesting in this text that in verse 1, the idea of circumcision is a custom, and by verse 5, it's a law. And there's a big, there's a big difference between law and custom. A custom is a norm, it's a tradition, it's a non-essential, it's something that's helpful. A law is an edict. It's a non-negotiable, it's something that you have to do. And so these Pharisees who had come to faith in Jesus are saying that circumcision by law has to be part of the gospel of believing in Jesus Christ. And Peter, we know that name. Peter, on the other hand, frames this whole discussion. This is where we can learn a lot from Acts chapter 15 of how do we do, how do, as church communities, how do we do conflict resolution well? And so the start of verse 11, Peter says this, we believe. The inclusion of the other leaders of the early community there in Jerusalem, that's sort of where the center of early Christianity was. He says, we believe that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. It was our whole point last week. It's, the, it's truly the point of the book of Acts. As this early church is starting, as people are coming into the way of Jesus, the point of the book of, book of, the book of Acts is this. It's faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing for everyone, period. It's the most hopeful message that we get to proclaim, that everybody is invited into a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can add on to it, and it's for 
everyone. It's so key as we get into the latter part of the book of Acts. It's for everyone. Even the people you don't want it to be for, it's for them just as, it, as much as it is for you. So that's the debate. That's the conflict. That's the fight. It's over the essential reality that it's the core of the core of what we believe. It's the gospel. John Wesley said this. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. And this is at the core of what essentials are. This Pharisee party, this Pharisee group, they believed in grace. They had actually accepted Christ, but they were so bound to their customs that they were now attaching that onto the gospel. And they were making life more difficult for these Gentile believers that were coming to faith. And this text, again, for us, is so good when it comes to a model for conflict resolution. So think about it. You have the church in Jerusalem where this all sort of started. And then you have this, this church in Antioch where these Gentile believers are coming to faith. And they're now being told, if you're coming to faith, you need to be circumcised. Church in Antioch doesn't go rogue. I think for a lot of us, in the way we often do church, if we disagree, what do we normally do? We just run. So what the church in Antioch does has a lot to teach us. They don't wash their hands of Jerusalem. They actually respect the church in Jerusalem, and they come there. And they come to the church in Jerusalem. They send a delegation, in other words, Paul and Barnabas. And notice the response when they, re- they arrive by the church in Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the apostles and elders. There's this mutual respect. The mother church doesn't look at them and say, oh my word, here they are again, causing trouble, riling things up. Somehow in the early church, even as it's spreading out, somehow in the early church, in that community, everyone matters. Everyone gets a voice. The church actually takes time to listen. That's a hard thing today. This is a convicting word for, for me, for us. They listened to each other. And I love the message version starting in verse 7. The words of Peter, he says, Friends, you know that from early on God made it plain that he wanted the pagans to hear the message of the gospel and embrace it. And not in a secondhand roundabout way, but firsthand straight from my mouth. And God, who cannot be fooled by pretense on our part, but always knows a person's thoughts, gave them the Holy Spirit exactly as he did us. He treated the outsiders exactly as he treated us, beginning at the very center of who they were and working from that center outward, cleaning up their lives as they trusted and believed in him. So why are you now trying to out-God God? Isn't that good? Why are you trying to out-God God? Loading these new believers with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too. Don't we believe that we are saved because the master Jesus amazingly and out of sheer generosity moved to save us just as he did those beyond our nation? What are you fussing about? So good. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have is to simply let God be God. Right? Like we love the idea of grace. I love the idea of God's grace, that there is a loving God who came and died and rose again and that he would invite me, even the worst of sinners, into a relationship with him. I love grace for me. 
But when it comes to grace given away to other people, I tend to put on stipulations. I tend to put on caveats that well, it's grace, but they need to do this first. It's grace, but you know, they, they may. The point of this text is crystal clear again and again and again. It's faith in Jesus plus nothing for everyone. It's the whole point of Acts. It's the whole point of this text. And it's interesting, James in this text, it's not James who we read about in the Gospels, it's James the brother of Jesus who had come to faith a little bit later on. In 1 Corinthians 15 it talks about it. This is James the brother of Jesus who is now sort of the leader of the early church. And it says in the text that after listening he speaks. It's a good little learning there, right? For spiritual leadership. After listening, he speaks. And he places all that he has heard in the context of Scripture. He quotes Amos and says, this is the story that was supposed to happen. The good news about Jesus Christ was supposed to be for everyone. And they make that as the proclamation. That it's faith in Jesus plus nothing for everyone. It says in verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to impose this burden on you. Notice the priority of how it goes. The Holy Spirit and us. And now here's the word that God has given us. The gospel is simply by faith. God's grace is enough. No caveat, no stipulations, nothing, no theology thing that you want to put on the end of that. God's grace expressed in Jesus Christ is enough, period. It's good news, right? For some of you, maybe you're coming back to church after a long time away. Maybe you've never been to church and you're hearing that there is a loving God who wants to love you. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in him. That's all it is, friends. That's all it is. But what's interesting in this text is there's a little more for us for the church to learn. If you keep reading here, it's God's grace is enough, but then it talks about living in community. It's that wording there of please abstain from eating meat offered to idols, unkosher foods, from fornication and immorality. And the idea is not that that's attached to the gospel. That's not what the wording says. He now talks to them about what it looks like to live in community. You are free in Christ 100%. One of the core affirmations of our covenant tradition is this idea of freedom in Christ. And when we hear freedom in Christ, some of us think that means I can do anything I want. No. Freedom in Christ means you get to live in community with your brothers and sisters and serve them in the way that God commands you. That's what freedom is. And it's actually way more freeing than doing whatever we want. It's community expressed in the way that Jesus would. It's the idea of basically don't abuse your freedom by intentionally offending others. Live in community in a way that honors those around you. And one last thing. Because for those of you this week that will keep reading and go into Acts chapter 16, you will be confused. 
Because right at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, there is this story of this young man, Timothy, who's gifted for ministry, who comes to faith, and now he is being told, as you come to faith, you need to be circumcised. It's like, didn't we just deal with this in chapter 15? <laughs> like, what is this all about? Why are we talking about this? This young man, Timothy, if you know much about the Bible, is a pretty important character. His mom was a Jewish believer. His dad was Greek. And it just seems so strange. But I think what Paul is trying to get across to this young man, Timothy, which again is a good word, is that as a leader, as one who will be a leader in this church, in this thing that's starting, that will eventually change the world, that you need to be willing to do whatever necessary for the sake of the gospel. Whatever necessary for the sake of the gospel. Because... If faith in Jesus plus nothing for everyone really is the core message of what we believe and we believe that changes everything, then we should be doing, all of us should be doing whatever possible to share that with whoever possible. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9. One of my favorite passages, verses 19 through 23. Listen to this. Paul says, For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I've become as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, so I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the, win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share in its blessings. If that's really the gospel, if there's a loving God who through what Jesus Christ did in his life and death and resurrection invites you and me simply by faith to have a relationship with that God plus nothing else, and that's for everyone, we should be compelled by sheer grace to share that with anyone that we come in contact with. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, for two groups in this room, God. For some in this room who are wondering if you're real and you're out there and this whole God, church thing is an actual reality, God, I pray that you would give them the strength to take one step of faith towards you, whatever that is, God that you might be real or maybe you are real and they're, they're, they're moving into full trust. And then for a lot of us, Lord, we are busy, we're tired, we're whatever. Life gets in the way and we forget that if grace is actually true, we should be moved beyond, beyond anything we can imagine to share it with those we come in contact with, God. I pray that you would do that in us. That you would help us day in, day out to be aware of your grace, of your goodness, what the gospel has done and is doing in us so that we might with open hands share that with the world around us. We pray that you would do that for your glory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.